Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where you and your unique business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Steve Farber. Steve is the founder and CEO of the Extreme Leadership Institute an executive coach and author of Love is Just Damn Good Business. His other books include the bestsellers The Radical Leap and Greater Than Yourself. A sought-after speaker and consultant, Steve is based in San Diego. Before we begin, this podcast conversation is between adults and contains a little adult language, so if you have little ones near you, you might want to use your headphones. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you, Ursula. It's great to be here with you. So um, we all want to know what good it does to focus on love and business. I've certainly been of the mind that that is an an important and powerful thing. And uh, but I'd like to really hear what how, how you see love providing a timeless competitive advantage, which is something you say in your book. Yeah. Um, So it's really funny because. What you just said was, we all want to know what love is, what love has to do with business. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. And then you followed it up with, I've always felt that was a powerful idea, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So this has been my experience. Most people, I can't prove this scientifically, but most people already feel that way. Most people feel the same way that you do. Most people already believe that love is a powerful business idea. It's just that most people, believe that most people don't believe that, (laughs) right? It's true. true. So it creates this really interesting kind of dynamic. And a colleague of mine used to say that interesting is a word that you use when you mean something else. Uh, But it's, it's this kind of collective delusion that we've subscribed to that says love has no place in business. Right. And, And we say that because we think we're supposed to say that, but yet there are, you know, most of us or, I'll say, I'll qualify it. I'll say many of us already have an experience that says something very different from what mm-hmm. we assume is the collective belief. So just to be clear, I don't mean love as a sentiment. I don't mean romantic love. I don't mean love the same way that you have love for your spouse or child or significant other. Uh, but there is, a, there is a quality of love that we bring to our work that has to do with you know, loving the people that we're serving, loving the impact that we can have, loving the values that we stand for, loving the company that we're with, the team that we're on. Or if I'm an entrepreneur, loving this idea that I'm trying to bring to the world, loving this company that I'm creating. We all, we all have that instinct in us. The question needs to be, what should that look like in the way that we do business? And that's that's what I've been exploring for a couple of decades now, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I um, was really 
interested in how this ties in with a model of, uh, you call it extreme leadership, your LEAP model that you've been talking about for a long time. And I know in the book, you talk about some of the roots of the the word love and philos, a Greek word, is people linked arm in arm with a common vision and common goal. And um, that is certainly a unifying concept that's brought people together in business. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the, the, the love that makes us nervous is what the Greeks called eros and <laughs> makes us nervous in the context of business as right. it should. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the love that we're talking about here is, is really more about that linking arm in arm. Uh, it's that, that very deep feeling of, of affection and care and concern and compassion that you have for the people around you. It's an interesting word because we use it all the time as if it always means the same thing, but it's very different. For example, I, I love pizza <laughs> and I love my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love them very differently. One <laughs> 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 I, when I should love and one I shouldn't. You know, uh, so um, it's, this is about not so much getting caught up in the semantics of it, but really more in the experience of it because we know it when we experience it. We know, for example, when we really love a product, um, you know, that's, that's why you see people, you know, on the great divide between, you know, Android and iPhone, for example, right? I, I, Apple users love Apple and that is the word that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, so we understand it as consumers. And if we understand it as consumers, we have to flip that around and also understand it as business people that really our competitive advantage comes from creating product services combination of the two that our customers, clients, consumers are going to love. If we can't, if if we can't get there, then we don't have a competitive advantage because satisfaction being okay with something is that's it is just okay. It doesn't engender any kind of loyalty. Mm-hmm. So what I'm suggesting is if we, and this is kind of the business case for this, Ursula, it's, and, and I believe it's where it's where alchemy comes into play because <laughs> we need to, what we need to do in order to create that experience for customers is we need to back that up one step and, and create, a culture, an environment, whether it's the culture of a big company or a culture of a team or a culture of one person for that matter, that people love working in. If I don't love working here, it's much more difficult for me to create that kind of experience for customers, right? So right. if I've been if I've been okay with having, let's say I'm, I'm I've got a small company. If I've been okay with people being okay, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a job, you know, it, it pays me enough to pay my rent or my mortgage and live my real life on evenings and weekends. If I've been okay with that, I need, I, there's a transformation that needs to happen. And, and now the challenge needs to be for me as a leader in that organization is to say, what can I do to raise the bar on that and really create create the kind of work and the kind of place that people love being in because that's going to create the kind of experience that our customers are going to love. And we have to back it up one more step. I can't create that kind of culture unless I love it myself first. Love and by it. I mean 
the people that, that work with me, the company that, that I've created, the customers that I'm serving, all of that together. Well, and you mentioned a number of things I want to dive into a little more there, but let's start with something you also said in the book, which is a, a deeply valued customer experience has to come from employees who love what they're doing. So what does that tell us about employee engagement and all those initiatives and training that has gone into trying to create a really valuable customer experience? Yeah, that's exactly why we've been measuring employee engagement. So I'm not really saying anything new. What, what we know already is that there is a very positive correlation between uh, high engagement companies, high engagement scores, and, and all of the things that we try to measure as business people, including the customer output, right? including the customer response. So we measure things like productivity, we measure things like turnover and, and, and all of that, and that all you know, goes down to the bottom line. But that bottom line is not going to be enriched unless we're, we're, we're having an impact in the marketplace, right? In other words, mm -hmm. unless our customers love what we're doing for them. So um, engagement is great. Engagement scores are great. And great engagement surveys is what I mean. Um, all those ways that we measure, it, it's fine. Um, but I think that the trap is that we we tend because engagement has been such a popular topic for so long and for all the right reasons we tend to think of it as a as an end in and of itself mm -hmm. that you know if i've got good engagement scores then okay that's we're done that's fantastic look how great we are and really <laughs> that should be the beginning once that engagement happens then we should be asking what can we do with that what can we really do with that if we've got a workforce that's, uh, and by the way, engagement, when people, you know, say that they're engaged, they don't answer the question, are you engaged? There are lots of elements that go into that, right? Things mm -hmm. like, you know, is your work meaningful? And do you, do you, do you feel like you make a difference at work? And are you recognized for the work that you do? Those are all the things that go into this mix that we call engagement. So once, once we've got a team that says, yes, I am engaged here, then it's like, now the challenge is how can we raise the bar, but how much do you love it here? And can we create an experience that our customers will love? And what I mean by that is to lay that out as an overt intentional objective. So for example, it may be asking a question like, what can we do differently to show our customers that we love them, which is a very different question from how can we improve customer service? Right. Or how can, and how can we satisfy customers or even that, that question of how do we kind of blow them away with the amazingness of our customer care? Yeah. Now we're getting closer. Yeah. 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 That wow factor is, you know, that's, that is the, the other side of the coin to love it's, or the same, maybe the same side of the coin. It's wow. I love you. You know, it's uh that that's what our objective needs to be. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, you mentioned, you know, measuring employee engagement and having that be kind of the end game of, of here's the measure and okay, we're doing it. So everything's fine. I, it's one of those examples of metrics where it's, it's a reasonable metric. It's a good metric in the short term, but it doesn't take it quite far enough yeah. in terms of how it's being implemented yeah so i think the well, you know the the um, companion metric to that perhaps is the um you know it, it, 
the measure of the customer experience, the most popular and arguably uh, accurate measurement of that is the net promoter score. Mm-hmm. So for the uninitiated, the net promoter score on a scale of one to 10 asks this question, what, to what degree are you, or how likely are you to recommend our product or service to friends, colleagues, and family? And there's variations on that theme. So if I give you a 10, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm telling everybody about you and I'm not telling everybody about you unless I love you. <laughs> that's, that's really what it's saying. <laughs> and, and the, the, the magic of the net promoter score is that anything, I can't remember exactly what the, the, what the cutoff is, but the objective is 10. So in other words, if you score a five or a six, it's like, well, you know, we're halfway there. That's pretty good. It's not pretty good. It's yeah. got to be a nine or a 10. Otherwise, we're not there yet, period. And mm-hmm. so it's a measurement of love. And, and I got that context uh, from uh, an interview that I read uh, once upon a time from somebody at, at Intuit who said that when, when people give us a 10 on the net promoter score, they're telling us that they love us. So internally, they were referring to it as the love metric. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, um, in, in, in measuring that and looking at it, it's not just the employees that are obviously going to have to be essential in this. It has to be led by leadership. So um, you wrote, a leader who doesn't do what he or she loves will never truly make love a core component of the business. Yeah, Is because that- otherwise, otherwise, what's your alternative? If, if you're, in other words, if you're not authentically feeling it, if that's not authentically where you're coming from, then you're, but you think it's a good idea, then really your only other alternative is to fake it, hmm. right? And people have a pretty good BS meter. They know when we're faking it. So yeah. this isn't about um, trying to put on a show that convinces people, for example, your employees that you love that they, you love the work that they do and you love them for being there when you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what this is. This is you've got to get to the place where that's your genuine, authentic point of view and perspective and feeling. And, and therefore, you're going to take lots of different kinds of actions on that. Hmm. Well, my work centers around helping people and organizations have impact. And I define impact as where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. So it's, it's both. It's very much the two in harmony. And in your book, you speak to the same kind of harmony, which becomes you talk about it becoming a dichotomy when fear takes over and that when fear takes control, they drive leaders to love things that are self-focused like money and control and personal success more than things that are focused on others. They, they love what they think they can get out of what they do. Can you speak to that and, and the, the fact that, I mean, the way fear comes into it? Sure. So let me back up and put it in a, in a broader context. So mm-hmm. the, the, the framework for this approach is what I, if that's the right word, um, is this. Do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. So there's three parts to that. Doing what you love is your personal connection to the work. Uh, but that's not enough. 
is if all you're doing is what you love and you don't care about anybody else, then, you know, take them to an extreme that's called narcissism. So do what you love in the service of people. That's the context. So are, you're connected to it, but you're using that to have an impact. To, to, so you're showing up and having, and having an effect, a positive effect on the people around you, whether it's customers, coworkers, um, you know, colleagues, et cetera. So I'm doing what I love in the service of people and I'm serving them to such a profound degree that the result is they reciprocate. They love me in return. Do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. That's why it's also the subtitle of the book and the book is structured around those three elements. Now, where fear comes into play is on a couple of different levels. One way of looking at this is you have two potential motivators here. One is love and one is fear. If I'm coming from a place of fear, uh, it's going to create a certain set of behaviors that will engender more fear, right? So if I'm afraid that you're going to screw things up if you work for me, then the way that I'm going to lead is by micromanaging and being overly controlling and watching everything you do. And if I'm watching over your shoulder all the time and checking and rechecking everything that you do, in essence, what I'm saying to you is I don't trust you, right? Mm -hmm. And if I don't trust you, what kind of experience or what kind of reaction am I going to get back from you? Distrust because it's all reciprocal, right? So if I come from a place of fear, uh, it's going to create uh, behaviors that will engender more fear, distrust, and all the things that we're trying to, that we're trying to alchemize. Is that a word? <laughs> into, <laughs> I so. into something, into something positive. Now, if we're coming from a place of love, again, by extension, it creates a different set of behaviors. Uh, For one thing, it creates higher expectations. So I don't have to control you to get get better work out of you. I don't have to control you to get better work out of you. I'm creating expectations that say, I love this place, you love this place, therefore, we have a much higher level of responsibility to make it great. Mm -hmm. So now I'm engendering that in you. I'm engendering trust in you. I'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm being contagious with this, this love because I'm extending that to you as opposed to keeping you under my thumb because I'm afraid you're going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. Now, so, that's, so that's one way of looking at fear. The motivation, what is our motivation? Where are we coming from as leaders and as human beings in general, right? But the other way to look at fear, there's a positive element to this as well because if I'm coming from a place of love and for example, I really want to. I really want to change the world for the better. I, I want. I want to. I want to be an activist. I mean, I, I want to have a an impact on my community to take it out of business just for a second. Well, when I stand up and and, and speak out, that's a scary thing. It's scary, mm-hmm. uh, and that is good fear, because that's telling us that we're really doing something significant. Now, bring that into the work environment. If I have um, uh, an idea. Uh, that I've been kind of keeping to myself because I don't know if it's going to work. And then one day I get up enough courage to launch this idea to launch, maybe it's a new product or a new project or whatever. If it's significant, it's going to scare me. And that's a natural thing. So in other words, love is the motivation and fear is the experience. And this is a dynamic that I refer to as the OSM, which is spelled capital O, capital S, 
exclamation mark, capital M. <laughs> and you know where I'm going with that. I, uh, I do. Yeah, that stands for the oh shit moment. And that is a natural part of leadership and of business and of entrepreneurship. Yeah, you talk about uh, if you're not pushing through some kind of internal fear to serve people, then you're falling short of what leadership is meant to achieve. So are you saying that moving through fear is integral to leadership somehow? Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Um, If you're not experiencing the OSM with some frequency in the context of your leadership endeavors, you're not really leading yet. So it's not fear in the, in the negative, you know, trembling sense of the word. It's, it's kind of an interesting mixture of fear and exhilaration kind of wrapped in together. The, the analogy that I often use is, the, is riding on a roller coaster. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know chances are pretty good you're not going to get flung out of that thing at a million miles an hour, uh, but it still feels that way. It's still scary, right? right. Uh, so it's, you're exhilarated and, and it's scary and all that wrapped together. The same is true in, in leadership. When we're taking a stand, when we're trying to change things for the better, which is what leaders should be doing, which is what I, why I refer to real leadership as extreme leadership, because it, it does feel extreme when you're really doing this stuff. Um, then the OSM will kind of stand as, as proof that I'm really doing it. So what starts to happen is that we begin to look at that experience in a different way. We've, to use the, the, you know, the old pop psychology term, we're reframing it uh, into a positive thing. Whereas yesterday, if I took a stand on something and, I was, and it scared me, I'll take a real simple example, speaking in front of people, right? One mm-hmm. of the greatest fears out there. Well, if, if the only reason I can think of to not speak up, say, even at a meeting, some people are terrified to do that. If the only reason I can think of to not do that is because it scares me, then that's the reason to do it. Because if I'm not pursuing it and I'm just keeping my mouth shut, therefore there's no OSM, I'm not really leading yet, right? Mm-hmm. So push it to the point where it scares you a little bit and, and then look at it and say, oh, there's that OSM. That's a good thing. <laughs> As opposed to, I don't want to do that. Well, it's, <laughs> it's a good thing. And then little by little, what happens is that OSM is not an OSM anymore because now it, you've, because you've been courageous enough to speak up anyway, after a while you get better at it. And pretty soon you're standing on a stage in front of people. And that's terrifying at first, but then you do it again, and now suddenly it's, or little by little, maybe it's not sudden, um, it's not an OSM anymore. So it's a relative thing. And by constantly pursuing it, what we're doing is making sure that we're growing in our ability to impact other people. Well, and it's, uh, I think that's a very apt word, growing, because I think it, what you're talking about is really moving out of your comfort zone. It's that discomfort almost, it's almost, I think we kind of overclaim fear sometimes where it's really just discomfort. And we're, we are kind of trained to avoid discomfort. It's a natural kind of evolutionary thing to avoid it. But mm-hmm. if you, if you want to become who you need to be to lead, there's growth involved. There's, there's moving out of your comfort zone. Would you agree? I would. And I think it's a range. I think it can be discomfort, but it could also be fear. I mean, it could mm-hmm. be it could be terror for that matter. I mean, there are people that just the very thought of just to continue with this particular example, standing sure. up in front of people and talking is is 
literally terrifying. Sure. So, so yeah, there, there's a range. And the other thing is it's relative. One person's OSM is another person's walk in the park. So <laughs> right. for example, you know, uh, a while back I, w- I was invited to speak to um, uh, an association of, of uh, surgeons, right? Um, so these, these were, these were 300 surgeons in the room. And, and before I went up to speak, the guy who was putting on the conference, you know, they, uh, for, for that year, another surgeon, he said, oh, by the way, um, you know, you're about to speak to 300 of the biggest egos on the planet. <laughs> and they will decide very quickly if they want to listen to you or not. Uh, and if they don't, they'll, you know, they'll, people will stand up and walk out. They, you know, they, they won't, I'm just warning you ahead of time. It's just the way they are. Mm-hmm. Have fun. <laughs> this was literally right before I went on. Oh, and, wow. and fortunately, um, fortunately, we connected. We connected really well. And because I have kind of a twisted sense of humor and they did. Uh, <laughs> but when I got to the part of my, of my keynote where I, where I began to explore with them the OSM, I, I realized that I'm talking to people who cut people open for a living. Yeah. Which to me is the most terrifying thing I can imagine. And, and I, at that very moment, was standing up in front of 300 of the biggest egos on the planet, which was a terrifying prospect for a lot of the people in that room. Sure. They wouldn't switch places with me for, for all the money in the world, mm-hmm. any of them, right? So it's all in, entirely relative. And I imagine for each one of those surgeons who you know, right now in an operating room is, is cutting into another human being and at the same time talking about their golf game. That's not an OSM anymore. But I guarantee you the first time they, they did that, it was, right? Who mm-hmm. could have that experience the first time and not be terrified that they're going to make a mistake or whatever? Sure. So it's all relative. It's all shifting. And therefore, that's why we need to keep pursuing it as long as we're coming from that place of love, loving the idea, loving the, you know, what we're trying to accomplish, loving the values that we stand for, et cetera. Hmm. Well, something you've touched on a, a few times is this concept of service. And you, you say in the book, service is not servitude. It's not menial labor. And, and that this misperception or kind of unconscious association, I think, gets in the way for some leaders. So how do you look at service? Yeah, so service is is bringing great value to another or to a collection of people, um, and there's lots of ways of looking at it. It's changing. It's changing the world with a small W, right? Changing the world of your client, of your colleague, of your employees. Okay. Uh, service is is I'm to an extreme is you know I'm I'm putting myself on the line uh, for another person's or for our collective betterment servitude. And so therefore that's all, all of those descriptions come from a place of desire. I want it. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel the need for it. I'm driven to do it. Um, Servitude is, is like, you know, it's like being an indentured servant. I'm doing it. I'm serving kind of, I'm doing the stuff I'm supposed to do for you because I'm obligated to, or because I'm afraid not to, or uh, because I have no choice. Um, so it's a, it's a significant difference. And, you know, we tend to, I think what scares people about this service idea is that they look at it as a zero sum game, that if I'm serving you, that somehow I'm depleting myself. 
if I'm serving you by being a mentor to you, so this is a subject I talked about in my third book called Greater Than Yourself, the greatest leaders become the greatest leaders by making others greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. So if I believe that my success and your success are at odds with each other, in other words, the only way that I can succeed is by your failing to some degree, I'm not going to serve. But if I believe that my success comes from making you even more successful, then that's, that's where the, the, the beauty of service really comes into play. And that's what the mm-hmm. best leaders do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you, I mean, love always looks like value is something you said in the book too. I thought that was a really great statement that uh, kind of sums that up. Well, I'd, I'd love to get into some practical things at this point. So how do you create a culture and environment where love can flourish? What are some things that we as leaders can do to cultivate that kind of culture? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer that question in, in a couple of different ways. One by way of example, uh, a little kind of mini case study, um, but also by answering the question with a question. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> it starts with asking yourself the right questions that relate to your work. So the question might be, and I, I mentioned this earlier, something like, how can we better show our customers or our employees, you, you pick the context, whatever the context is, that we love them? or if we really loved our customers, if we really loved our employees, what would we do differently? Hmm. And, and then see where that takes you. Um, so here's, here's an example of what that might look like. There's a great little company in Jacksonville, Florida called Trailer Bridge. I've been talking about them quite a bit lately. Um, they're, they're just a beautiful example of, of exactly what we're talking about. So they're not in a very sexy business. They're a shipping company, right? They ship stuff in containers from the mainland, mostly to Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, right? So containers on boats, point A to point B, that's what Trailer Bridge does. And they've been doing that for like 28 years. Um, The problem with Trailer Bridge in the past was that they were a terrible company. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that sounds, that sounds <laughs> really harsh. It sounds harsh, <laughs> but just objectively they were um, because their customer scores were terrible. Um, they were like a, they were viewed as a discount shipper because the service was so bad that the only reason people did business with them was because they were cheaper. Um, they had very high turnover and they went bankrupt. So, you know, when you look at all those together, to say it's a terrible company is not an exaggeration. Uh, then they burned through four CEOs in two years. Wow. Four heads of HR in the same period of time. They were just grasping at straws, looking for, you know, somebody to, to turn this place around. And it was just, they were just blowing them out the door. They finally, the, the board finally tapped a guy named Mitch Luciano, uh, who was already on the management team. They, they asked him to step up into the role of CEO, <laughs> be CEO number five, oh, wow. <laughs> which is like, next. You know, um, <laughs> and he actually said yes. Now there's fear. Did. There's fear moving through fear and action. Right, but here's the thing: he said yes because he loved that company. So this is this is the key. Okay, he said yes, and I will not take the title of CEO. He said you can call me president, but I have to earn CEO because everybody here is burned out on the CEO idea, right? Uh, I have to earn CEO from the employees call me president and board, he said, 
I'm just going to warn you. You've got to let me do this my way because, now I'm paraphrasing, I'm a love guy. <laughs> Didn't say those words, but he said, I'm, my approach is going to be very different from what you've seen before. And obviously they needed a different approach. So they gave him, you know, quite a bit of license. So where he was coming from is, uh, I believe in, in these people that work here. Uh, I, I love what we can do together. I love the, the challenge of, of showing the world what we're capable of. And I need, first of all, for this environment to be a place that people love working in. Now, that was radical at the time because they, were, <laughs> they couldn't have been further from that, right? So right. the question is, if, if we loved working together, what would we do differently? So here's what he did. First thing was kind of symbolic, but a little bit beyond that. This was a company at the time of 120 people. Everybody was walking around with name tags on. Well, if we really loved working together, we would at least know who each other is, right? We'd know each other's names. Right. So the symbolism was no more name tags. He banished mm -hmm. the name tags, uh, which meant that he personally had to learn everybody's name and make sure that he knew it day in, day out. You know, just had it down cold and encouraged everybody else to do the same. He looked at the physical environment and he said, we're all isolated. Everybody's got their own offices and, and nobody sees anybody. Nobody talks to anybody. So he lowered the heights of the cubicle the cubicles in the main area. He went to all of his managers and he said, you guys have been holed up in your office and you haven't been sharing any information. If we really loved the people here, we'd be dedicated to everybody's success, which means we need to start sharing information instead of hoarding it. And some managers did not like that idea. And some managers were soon gone. <laughs> Not gone as in disappeared mysteriously, but gone as in fire, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't right. know what happened to him. He's gone. <laughs> uh, but so, so there's tough love in this, right? It's a love for the, for the team, for the business. Even though I might love this individual who's this information hoarder, if they're not willing to, to open up in that way, they're no use for this company anymore. That's what he said. Right. So they started working on that internal stuff. Then they looked at their, at their um, uh, again, in the physical space, you know, they, they created areas that people could congregate and hang out, foosball tables, ping pong tables, all that kind of stuff. And they brought in, uh, and they still do this, they bring in a food truck, I think it's every Thursday, outside the office building, everybody comes out, has lunch together. It's a great thing. I was there visiting on a day where they did that. It's fantastic. Um, and then... He said, all right, let's, uh, let's look at the customers, right? Can't forget about them. So what are our policies in the way that we do business with our customers? And are we showing them in the way that we do business that we really love them, we love their business, et cetera? And one of their longstanding policies was a purely, you know, bottom line financial one that said, unless a container is at least 75% full, uh, we won't sail because if it sails at 75% or less, we lose money on that shipment. So think of it from the customer's perspective, okay? You're shipping a car to Puerto Rico. You told your family it's going to be there on a particular date and then it doesn't sail because they couldn't sell enough space on that container. Right. Right. What does that say to the customer? Too bad. We're more important than you are, right? Mm -hmm. So he said, and this is the key, if we really loved our customers, what would we do if we were mm -hmm. only 75% full? Yeah. 
Sail anyway. Sail anyway. We sail. That's what they started saying. We sail. So these are just a few examples of, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say, hundreds of things that they did in answer to that question, how do we show people that we love them? And now I'll just tell you, I'll, I'll just bring it right to the punchline. Um, the last, see, 2018 was the most profitable uh, in the history of the company. 2016 and 17, just those two years, those two years combined, the revenues exceeded the previous 25 years of the company combined. Wow. They've wow. been voted number one and number two best place to work in the city of Jacksonville. They're winning mm -hmm. all kinds of service and quality awards. It is a completely different place. They're expanding all around the country. And if you sit Mitch down and you ask him, what did you do? To make this happen, the first thing he will tell you is, it wasn't me, it was us. And the second thing he'll tell you is, we operationalized love as a business practice. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. I mean, and what a turnaround. It's so dramatic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. and they're, they're very inspiring. Uh, they're doing great things. Everybody's just absolutely stoked to work there. This is another thing. They don't spend any money on recruiters anymore. <laughs> People because seek own, it out. <laughs> their, own, their own employees yeah. wow. are their best recruiters. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, Steve, I, I wanted to ask you, in the context of what's happening in business now, in terms of an increasing recognition that a profit focus is not enough, that there has to be a broad stakeholder focus, and you're looking at the rise of B corporations mm. and conscious capitalism companies, and you know the recent business roundtable um, statement around we we cannot continue with this sole profit focus. How do you think this this impact of love is tying in with that, and and what effect does it have? Do you think it'll have in the community and the larger world? Yeah, so I, I think, um, again, the question itself belies the collective belief, which is that on some level, many people fear that love and profit are mutually exclusive. <laughs> that is, you know, which, which way are you going to go? Which one are you going to choose? You know, the love right. thing or are you going to make some money? I mean, come on. Well, well, the worst right. examples are always more most visible. So yeah, think, exactly, yeah, exactly. So, so what the first thing we need to understand is that they're not mutually exclusive. That mm -hmm. operationalizing love is a way to do business and creating environments that people love working in, and and the, and, and the experiences that our customers are going to go are going to love. Everything we've been talking about here does lead to profit. This is the way that we make money, and and it it will make us more successful. I I believe that yeah. there are that there are essentially three categories of people. There are people that, that just don't believe that love has any place in work. Uh, and I be also believe, although I can't prove it, that that is the smallest category. Then there's a category of people that says, well, love is a, is a nice thing to have, but it's not necessary in order to, to make money, in order to be successful. And then there's a third category, to which I obviously belong, that says love is the way that you make money. It's, it's a necessity because it's the foundation for everything else of greatness that we do, including, as businesses, making money. That's, you know, that's a big part of why a business exists. And the beautiful thing is we can also use that business to, to create a great experience for people and to, 
and to have a positive impact in the world in terms of, uh, you know, everything from, you know, from the environment to community service to there's lots of ways that we can be, you know, corporately responsible, I think is the words. Um, so it's, it plays out on all of those levels. And I, I, I agree, I totally agree that we have an opportunity to use business as a place to create the kind of world that we all want to live in. Absolutely. Totally with you there. Yeah. Thank you for saying it that way. That was really articulate. And uh, I, I think it's uh, absolutely possible. So thank you for speaking to that. Well, I always I always end these interviews with a rapid round of three questions. Are you are you game? Sure, you've seen how rap how good I am at rapid answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay, let's do it. So, first question is: What's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Uh, that everybody does. Uh, mm. We we tend to discount our own ability to have impact. We we think of you know people of impact as the great you know historic leaders you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, and all that. But every one of us has a significant impact uh, in our immediate environment, and that all adds up. Yeah, I agree. Well, second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Uh, I've always always strived to make a personal connection uh, in contexts that most people assume will be impersonal. So, for example, people that read my books and write write to me afterwards, uh, I like to respond with a phone call. Mm. And some of my dearest friends, I mean, I am not exaggerating this. Some of my dearest friends started out as people that read one of my books or heard me speak somewhere, reached out to me, and I just picked up the phone and called. I love that. That is wonderful. What a warm response to someone taking the time to comment. That's great. Well, the last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, how can I positively have an impact? How can I affect things? Yeah. Um, I'm going to offer, again, another question. This, to me, is one of the most powerful questions uh, that uh, has kind of evolved in my work. Um, the question is this. What can I do right now? regardless of what anybody else around here is or is not doing to change my piece of this company for the better. Uh, what can I do right now, regardless of what anybody else around here is or is not doing to change my piece, or if you, if it's your company to change my company for the better. That's great. Yeah. I love that. That, and that focus on action is fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being here today. It's a great pleasure to hear you talk about your book, and I think it's it's really going to help people think about business in a very different way, um, and, and it was quite inspiring to read. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's my great pleasure, Ursula. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, if you can remember my name, Steve Harbour. <laughs> Um, you can find me on all the social media platforms. So LinkedIn, it's Steve Farber. Facebook is Steve Farber. Twitter, Steve Farber. Instagram, Steve Farber. You know, you get the idea. Um, and then our company website for the Extreme Leadership Institute, you just go to extremeleadership.com and uh, you can read all about what we do. Great. And I'll have all those links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. 
Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.